All right, so we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of James called Where Faith Meets Life. Um, Last week we talked about enduring trials and facing temptations, and last time we gathered a couple weeks ago, we talked about what does it look like to not only be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. And so we're going to continue tonight, and we're going to be looking at what does the gospel have to say about favoritism? How does the gospel speak to that? And uh, so before we get into that, I just want to ask y'all a question. I'm just curious. Anybody ever just felt like left out or rejected or anything else like that? Anybody have a story they're willing to share? Times maybe they felt left out, felt rejected, or maybe the opposite of that. Has there ever been a time you felt really included and really loved and really like welcomed? When I first came here. Okay, when you first came here. How so? Like, how'd you feel welcome? I came down here and it was really welcoming. Like, it wasn't, didn't seem like, like, like we talking about, it's very open in place, I think. Mm-hmm. Very not excluded. I mean, yeah, there's little fringers, but like mm-hmm. still, yeah. not Maybe it's not a story, but anybody ever felt that before? Like just felt rejection or felt being excluded? Yes. Oh, um, when I first got to middle school, uh-huh. like I saw the eighth graders, the seventh graders, like with Oakland stuff on, and they're like, like football mm-hmm. and basketball stuff, like the shirts and stuff, mm-hmm. and I felt kind of excluded because, mm-hmm. like, I hadn't started that stuff yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, feeling rejected or excluded is never a good feeling but then when we when we reverse that and we do opposite of that when we feel like welcomed by something we feel loved it is just one of the best feelings isn't it and what i want us to look at tonight is that the whole thing of feeling welcomed feeling loved is that that's exactly how the church should be is that the church should be the most welcoming most loving place that ever seen on the face of the earth and so we're going to look at tonight is just how, how sinful showing favoritism, partiality is. And so on your piece of paper, what I want you to know is, is that the main point, oh, I don't have this, the main point is this, is that the gospel commands and empowers us to love others equally as Christ has loved us. The gospel commands and empowers us to love others equally as Christ has loved us. Because here's the thing, like us as, as fallen, sinful human beings, like we're prone to want to love those who we get something out of. Might be financial gain. It could be some sort of social stature. Maybe some more followers on social media, things like that. We're always looking to find stuff, loving people that help us out some. Or maybe we hang out with, we treat more importantly those um, just who are a lot more like we are. And then people that are not like us or they seem different than us or They're just different personalities, different beliefs. We might not want to extend that same love to them. That's because our hearts, they're they're prone to want to love what what helps us best. Like what we get out of it. Just people who we're comfortable with loving. But what we're going to see tonight in this passage is that that is not how us as followers of Christ are to be. 
So what we saw two weeks ago is that we're not supposed to just be hearers of the word, but we're supposed to be doers of the word. And so we're going to look at tonight is just a key example of what James says. This is what it's going to look like to not be a doer of the word. So if you have your own copy of God's word, we're going to be in James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. If you don't have your uh, Bible with you, there is a piece of paper out there that you can have that has the passage on the back that you can go along and take notes, circle, underline different things to help you with it. And again, we're looking at just the sin of of what this, this will say partiality. Another word for that is favoritism. We're going to look at how the gospel shatters that sin, like shatters our view of how we're supposed to view this. All right, so here is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And they're not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you, are really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak as so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has never sh- who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray one more time. We'll jump right in. Dear God, thank you so much for tonight. I pray that you will just let your word speak for itself, that it won't be my opinion, but that'll be your truth. Anything that is my opinion will just fall by the wayside and not be remembered, but it'll be your word that'll be implanted in our hearts and grub, that'll take root, and by your Holy Spirit, you'll help us live this out and understand this. So I pray over these next few minutes that you will just clear all of our thoughts, all of our minds, clear us of any distractions that could be around us so we can focus in on what you have to teach us through your word. So I pray over these next few minutes, you will just let me hide behind your cross, hide behind your word, and just allow your word to speak for itself to all of us, that it will convict, it will encourage, it will help us grow more like Christ and more as a family here at LSM. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So there is two truths that James wants us to get out of this of how the gospel speaks to the sin of favoritism. The first one is this, is to dishonor the poor is to dishonor Christ. To dishonor the poor is to dishonor Christ. So like I said, a little bit of backstory to this passage is that James chapter 1, 19 through 27, I know it was a couple weeks ago, we talked about not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word. And so what James is doing here is that he's connecting that point to this one over these next few verses. That, okay, 
We're not supposed to be just hearers of the word, we're supposed to be doers. So here's a prime example of what it looks like or what it not looks like in this case. So James is giving this scenario, and, and at this time, when James is writing to this church, the people are mixing God's standards and the world standards. So they're mixing these two types of standards, and we're seeing how this plays out, and that they will show that they are appearing no different than the world at large around them by how they treat the poor people that come into their church. At this time, like the rich were given like really special treatment, often at the expense of poor people. So with that, we start in very first one. Like it says, verse one, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the truth in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So this verse sets the tone for the rest of this passage. Okay, saying that we are to show no partiality as we hold this faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically what partiality means, it means showing favoritism for any reason. Or a way, like in the Greek, if you will, it says receiving the face, which sounds weird. What that basically means is like you're receiving someone, you're judging someone on face value. So like all the external conditions of what they look like. So like their physical appearance, their social status, like their race, things like that. That's what you're judging someone based off of. And so it says we are to show no partiality. We're to show no favoritism. That we are to not judge by like the external appearance of someone. Instead, we are to hold our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how we're to show no partiality. Because Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the center of our faith in whom we are to follow. And he's the example we're to believe. And it's weird. It says... Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. And so why is that? Why does it say he's the Lord of glory? And what that means is because Jesus chose to show his glory to the least of these, to the poor, at least according to the world standards, to the poor. He chose to identify with the poor. And so what, what James does is he kind of gives us this scenario of a rich man and a poor man in verses 2 through 4. So it says this, it says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if they pay attention, and then if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, the rich man, and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there and, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So basically what that means is both these people are entering into their assembly. So basically entering into like their synagogue, into their church. Like it would be as if someone came into LSM tonight. A rich man and a poor man came in and is visiting this church. Rich man, gold ring, fine clothing. Poor man, shabby clothing, like it says. But it says the people pay attention to the rich man. So basically they gave attention to this rich man. They gave special treatment to this rich man, but instead ignored the poor man saying, uh, you, you can go sit over there. How about you go to the corner? But oh, the rich man, here, you come sit next to us. Here, we want you right here with us. That way you're close to us. They just made a distinction based off external appearances, just like that, and are judging these two people based off the standards of the world, which we're not supposed to do, just as verse 1 says, show no partiality, show no favoritism, don't judge people on face value, but it said that's exactly what they are doing. They're judging them based off external appearance. But Christians are not supposed to look at the exterior, we're supposed to look at the interior. We're supposed to care what's underneath the clothing. That's what we're supposed to care about, their heart behind all of that. Because think of the rich people at this time would drag poor Christians into the courts for economic gain. Yet these Christians are buddy-buddy with these rich people when they come in. 
Maybe they want some influence. Maybe they want a little more power. Maybe they want a little more influence in the society. These two people are visiting the Christian community. And the poor people are experiencing the same shabby, awful treatment that they do in the world. This should never be the case for followers of Christ. We should never base someone or judge someone based off, let's say, external appearances. We're supposed to look at their heart and see how God sees them as someone made in the image of God that he cares for, that Jesus died on the cross for. I'll kind of give a, I'll kind of give a little bit of a story. Anybody know what this is? So yeah, it's a weighted blanket. Anybody know what a weighted blanket is? Like what it's used for mainly? So like people that deal with like anxiety or depression, some people maybe like their special needs, it kind of helps calm them down. I've heard it described as like kind of being given a hug. Like when you go to bed and just some people need that comfort. Some people like that comfort. Like for example, like Rebecca has a weighted blanket. My fiance, she has a weighted blanket because she deals with anxiety or depression. And so what, what, the reason I have this up here is because my last semester at Liberty, which was this past fall, there was a guy in my hall named Mitch. He was a freshman. It was his first semester on. It was my last semester there before I graduate. He came all the way from Massachusetts down to middle of Virginia. And, you know, he kind of did his own thing. He would stay in his room. He would go to music, come back. You really wouldn't see him in the hall all that often. He would just kind of be in his room with the lights turned off and everything else like that. But we'd still invite him. Like, we'd still invite him to lunch. We'd still want to hang out with him. We'd still want to see how he is. And one day, he, uh, he texted me. He reached out. He goes, hey, can I meet you in your room and, and, and just talk for a sec? Sure, no problem. So later that night, he's in my room. And next thing you know, he is sitting on the futon of my room just breaking down crying. And, uh, and he's just saying just how he's struggling right now. Like, he's like, I'm really dealing with severe depression right now and being away from home. And it's really difficult. And there's one thing he said that stuck out. He said, I never feel like I've ever had a true best friend. And that really stuck. And so what I did is I, I was on spiritual leadership at the time. It was called like residential shepherds, basically like hall pastor, if you will. So me and the rest of my small group leaders, we decided to get together and we decided to all chip in money and buy a weighted blanket for him. Because he said how he's always wanted one and how it just would help a lot. And we all wrote encouraging note cards to give to him. And then we all gave it to him and we, we all met in his room. We presented him with this weighted blanket. We gave him all these note cards and we all laid hands and prayed over him. And we're done. You know what he did? He got up and he gave each and every last one of us a hug. All like about 12 of us. And then he got to me and he gave me a hug. And with a look in his eyes, I will never forget where he says, Brandon, I finally feel like I have true friends. And I couldn't help but think that's exactly how the body of Christ should be. That we're not judging someone based off of their external circumstances. Was he quirky to some people's eyes? Yeah. Did he stay in his room a lot? Yeah. Did he have different tastes and interests? Yeah. Could it sometimes be difficult to have a conversation with him? Yeah. But he was made in the same image of God as we were. And that if he is in Christ, he is family. And that should be exactly how it is, that we never base someone off external appearances, but should be looking at their heart, going beyond that, and seeing just for who they are and how God sees them. So let me ask you this. I want you to think about this to yourselves. How would you respond if someone with shabby poor clothing came through that door tonight? Or how would you respond if a famous person came through that door? Would you even pay attention to the poor person or be so focused on the rich popular person? What if someone came in here with different political beliefs than us? Or you personally? 
What if someone with different religious beliefs or no beliefs at all? How would we respond? How would we treat them? If someone were to come into LSM tonight, would they be able to tell us differently from the world? Or would we appear exactly the same as they would be treated out in the world? Here's the thing. As followers of Christ, there is to never be a distinction between those whom we love and welcome. In fact, Jesus went so much so in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. He said, this is how they will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And so we are to love people regardless of external appearances, regardless if they're poor or rich, regardless of their political beliefs, regardless of their religious beliefs, regardless of any of that. We are to love people beyond that. But if not, we go what it says in verses 5 through 7 is that we dishonor Christ when we dishonor the poor. We dishonor Christ when we ignore those who might be different than us. So like it says in verses 5 through 7, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So again, the poor ones are the ones who are like rich in faith in this life and the life to come. So think about this. If God chose the poor to inherit his kingdom, and if Jesus chose to identify with the poor and reveal himself to them, then what does that say about how we are to live our lives? Do we identify with or spend time with those in the world's eyes who might be weird or lesser? Do we avoid them because it might not be the cool thing to do? Do we try to skirt around them and maybe not try to be seen with them? When we dishonor and ignore the poor people, we are dishonoring God. And in 1 John 4, it goes so much further saying, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. When we show special treatment to others and ignore others, we are communicating that God does not love everyone equally. I know it might not seem that way. I know it might not come across that way. But when we show favoritism towards other people and are drawn towards other people more than others, what that's communicating to a world that is watching is that God does not love everyone the same. And that is not the case, as we're going to see. In fact, favoritism is not the gospel. Favoritism is the anti-gospel. Favoritism is the anti-gospel. Favoritism is when we look upon someone and we judge someone based off external appearances and say, no, they're not worth my time. I'm going to spend time with other people or I can't really get much out of them. When instead Jesus is the one that came down and served the least of these. He came down and cared for those around him. Think about this. These, this church that is showing favoritism towards this rich person is the same rich people that are, that, that are being shown special interest are the same ones that will drag others into court and blaspheme the name of Christ that they're supposed to be living out. Or think about this. Think about Jesus as a whole. So when Jesus came down to this earth, Jesus could have spent time with whomever he chose to. So when he came down to this earth, he could have been born any way he decided to. He could have been born in a palace, appeared as a king, because he truly is the king of kings and the lord of lords, but he was born in a manger. 
He could have hung out with all of the elites. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who were like the religious elite at that time. He could have hung out with like government officials who were just tops who had major influence. But you know who he chose to hang out with instead? Tax collectors. Who people in that time despised. Who Jesus was not going to get anything out of. Except maybe a worse reputation in the world's eyes. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with lepers. He hung out with people that in society's eyes were so much lesser, so much further down on the totem pole. In society's eyes, they were nobodies. But Jesus said, no, those are the people I'm going to identify with. Those are the people I'm going to choose to hang out with. And in fact, think about this even more. Those Pharisees, those Sadducees, those government officials, all those people like in the upper echelon that were the elites that Jesus could have chose to hang out with. You know what they end up doing? They end up dragging Jesus into court. They ended up blaspheming his name, and they ended up crucifying him. Those same people he could have buddy-buddied with and done that to maybe have a bigger influence on his ministry, potentially, quote-unquote. When we ignore the poor and show special interest to the rich, then we are no different than the Pharisees then. We appear no different to the world around us. Because to dishonor the poor is to dishonor Christ. And so if if that's the case, if it's to dishonor the poor, it's to dishonor Christ, then what does it mean then to not show favoritism? Then if we're to show no partiality and we're to love everybody equally, but our hearts are so prone to want to show favoritism, whether we realize it or not, how how do we overcome that? And that leads to our second point is this, is that to love others is to love Christ. To love others is to love Christ because, again, we can't do this on our own. We need the power of the gospel. So yes, the gospel commands us that you are to show no favoritism. You are to love everybody the same, which is hard because that's impossible for us to do. But the gospel at the same time, which is so encouraging, says it's going to empower us to help us do that. How Jesus is saying, okay, I want you to love everybody the same. But Jesus, we can't do that exactly, but I can. And I will help you do that. So again, again, this is connecting James 1, 19 through 27 about what it means to not just be hearers, but be doers of the word. So James says in verse 8, if we are to really fulfill the law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And what this, mean, what this is saying is it's not saying, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not saying love your neighbor as you best see fit. It's not saying love the people when, how the way even you want to be treated. It's not saying, but instead to love others as Christ has loved you. Because this, this thing, love your neighbor as yourself, is coming out of Matthew 22, 26 through 40, where someone's questioning Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? They're trying to trip Jesus up out of all six hundred plus commandments which one's the greatest one and jesus says you shall love the lord your god with all of your heart soul mind and strength you know what that means that we're to love god with all of our heart soul mind and strength we're to love him with everything that leaves no room to hold back because you want to know why jesus held nothing back to die on the cross and reconcile us back to himself he held nothing back showing the immeasurable love he has for us And so when we understand that, we cannot get the second command right until we get the first command right. Until we truly love God with everything, then we'll be able to love others with everything that we have as God has loved us. So we can never do the second one without the first one. You want to know what love truly is that he talks about? Here's the definition of love. 
To love is to have a love for a person and their good as understood by God's moral character, especially characterized by willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another's person's behalf. So basically, we love someone so much so they're willing to lay down our rights to help them. We're willing to lay down our preferences and things like that, our comforts in order for their benefit. And ultimately, their benefit is that they come to know Christ. Here's, here's other examples throughout Scripture of what true love is. True love is like Romans 5, 8, where it says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where it says, We were dead in our trespasses. Meaning we were dead in our sin. We were spiritually dead. There is nothing we could do to save ourselves. And then in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, and his great love that he has for us, has made us alive in Christ. Or one of the greatest things is in John chapter 13. So this is on the Last Supper. This is where Jesus is having the Passover meal and he's about to die. But right before this, he decides to wash his disciples' feet. So think about this. At this time, Jesus, the creator of everything, is humbling himself to wash his disciples' dirty feet. And at that time, it's not like they were wearing the newest Jordans. It's not like they had the nicest roads. I mean, their feet, they're picking up sandals. They're basically wearing cheap chacos, things like that. They're picking up dirt and grime, animal droppings, dust, disgusting stuff. It's probably hot, so their probably feet are cracked and gross and disgusting. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus filled up a, water with ba- or a basin with water, and he decided to wash his disciples' dirty, disgusting feet, including Peter, who's going to deny him three times. And including Judas, who is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Yet Jesus still chose to love them. He still chose to die on the cross for them. You know what love is? Love is when Jesus is being whipped, spat upon, his beard pulled out, had nails driven in his wrists and feet, mocked, people yelling crucify him, selling off his stuff. Yet with every bit of that, you know what Jesus said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While we rebelled against him, wanted nothing to do with him, while we were ones in the crowd mocking him, yelling crucify him, wanting absolutely nothing to do with him, Jesus still gave everything, sacrificed himself on the cross to reconcile us back to himself and loves us anyway. Seeing all of our past failures, seeing past present, future, sins, all the sins we commit, all the times we fail, all the times we turn from him. Jesus saw all of that. And you know what he said? Jesus looked upon, Jesus looked upon us and says, I want that person in my family. You know, in fact, I will do anything to have that person in my family. You know what? In fact, I will pay for that person to be in my family by sacrificing my own life just so that way they can be reconciled back to God. That's true love. That's what love is. And the thing is, this type of love, that's what Jesus is saying we are to show to other people. But it is impossible for us to do that in our own power because naturally our hearts rebel against that. So we need to look to Jesus, to his example, and have him transform our hearts. If we are not showing the love of Christ to everyone the same, then we are committing sin. Not only to others, but ultimately to God. 
So let me ask you this. Can you describe your life as that of Jesus, the love that he showed? Are, are you willing to love those that might disagree with you? Are you willing to love those that might hate you? Are you willing to love those that might have different political beliefs than you? Or maybe just look completely different than you? Because if we proclaim to be a follower of Christ, then it shouldn't matter. Because we are to love them as Christ has loved them. In fact, James set, like shows just how serious to this church, how much it means to show favoritism. Where it says in verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For, we, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so here's what he is saying. James talks about if we fail at one point, we fail at breaking every other part of the law. So this part might seem weird. Like, okay, why are you mentioning adultery? Why are you mentioning murder and all this? If we failed one point, we failed them all. It's two, there's two points of why the part of adultery and murder might seem odd, but why he brings it up. Here's what he wants us to understand. The first one is that just as we don't get to pick and choose which law we obey, we don't get to pick and choose those whom we want to love. That we are to love everybody the same. And the second one is this. The reason why he mentions adultery and murder, two very horrific acts, he says if we do not love everybody the same as Christ loved us, then it is just as horrific as committing murder and adultery. That's how serious we're to take loving others. That us as a body of Christ, we're going to be known by our love. That if people walk in here, they will see something different. That they will see that this is a group of people that are radically transformed by the gospel. We are to take loving others seriously. We are to take loving others seriously. Like I said, so much so that Jesus said that is how we will know. That is how people will know that we are his disciples. By our love we have for one another. So James is saying, hey, to love others is to love Christ. And, and to not love others is just as serious as, as adultery and murder. And then he gives us one last final warning, but also one last encouragement in verses 12 and 13. Where it says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So like I said, there is a warning and there is an encouragement in these last two verses. We are to act and speak as though who are judged under the law of liberty. And what we learned about a couple weeks ago is that that liberty means like freedom. It's like we are to judge as if we are under grace, as if we have been reconciled back to God. But if we are not merciful to others, then we cannot expect mercy from God on the day of judgment. That it's looking way far out in advance. That, that if we are not showing mercy now, then how can we expect God to show mercy on us then? That, that we are to love others because we are on the same playing field as those around us. That we are just as in need of Christ as they are. That they are made in the same image of God as we are. So that's a stern warning that we, that we are to take this seriously. But here's the other encouragement that it shows also. In verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to one who has never shown mercy. And then last this, mercy triumphs over 
judgment. That if we allow mercy to grow in us, mercy is like compassion, pity. Like we, we feel longing and caring for others. That if we let mercy grow in us and we extend that mercy to other people, then not only will mercy grow in us, but it'll grow in that individual. and It'll grow stronger and stronger and stronger. We also see that mercy has triumphed over judgment. The reason it says that, that mercy has triumphed over judgment, is because Jesus took on the judgment that we deserved. All of our sins, all of the things that we deserve judgment for, and Jesus said, I will put it on my back. I will put it on my shoulders to show us mercy when we did not deserve it. So here's the beautiful thing about that, that mercy is triumphed over judgment, that even if for those who maybe have experienced judgment or for those that have shown judgment can still experience the love and forgiveness for Jesus, from Jesus for that sin. Because Jesus has shown the ultimate love That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were dead in our sins, Jesus made us alive in him because of his great mercy and great love for us. How would you define your life? Based off this passage, how would you define it? Would you say, man, there there is times when I'm at school and there's people I really don't want to spend time with. I really want to avoid. I really don't want to be around. There's some people I think are just really weird. Or just, they are total, we are polar opposites. We have different political beliefs. We have different religious beliefs. I think that person might even hate me. Yet this command tells us that we are to love others the same. That this place at LSM down here should be the most welcoming and loving place for everyone. Regardless of where you come from, regardless of your background, regardless of any of that. That we are all one in Christ. That says we are no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ, because at the cross it is even playing field. We're all on the same level, that we are all in need of Christ, we're all in need of grace, we're all in need of mercy. So let me ask you this, maybe there's some of you in here tonight that you feel like you've been judged or you've been excluded and you've been trying to just search for love in all the wrong places or maybe like that you just, you're longing for something and and maybe it's through just judging others when really you realize that you're the one that truly needs love. That you're the one that's been running every which direction. I'm here to encourage you tonight that the gospel is for you. That you, that mercy has triumphed over judgment. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you can truly become forgiven. You can truly become free. You can truly become a new creation. That Jesus sees you where you are at. That if you will repent of those sins, and if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in his finished work, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he rose again three days later, then you can be saved tonight. Maybe there's some of you in here tonight that you are a follower of Christ, but you go, man, I really, I really have been showing judgment to other people. There is just some people, maybe I might not externally say it, but internally I've just been, I've just been I'm holding that grudge against someone. I'm holding that over someone. I just think that person's weird or strange or I want nothing to do with that person or that person's wronged me or hurt me. Is that we are to still show love to that person. And that that's just been difficult for you. That you know you shouldn't or you don't want to let go. 
You just feel like you're just really far deep in that sin. And I'm here to encourage you that the gospel is for you also. That if you also repent and you turn back to Christ, he's faithful to forgive you. He's faithful to meet you where you're at. He's faithful to see you as you are. That you're never too far gone from grace. It's not like we keep doing all these things and Jesus says, that's it, I'm done. No, Jesus knew all of this and still said, hey, I want that person in my family. I love that person to death. I love that person. I will give everything so they can experience true abundant life in this life and the next. So maybe that's you tonight and you're, and you're hurting, but if you'll repent, you can turn back to Christ. Or maybe some of you that, that you're a follower of Christ and you're doing well, that you've truly seen that. And you've, that's been rooted out in your life and you say, I, I, that's not me because I truly want to show the love of Christ for others. That I've seen how much Christ has loved me and how can I not show others this love? I can't hold grudges. It's not worth it. I'm encouraging you. Keep running. Keep doing that. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself. Keep reminding of your status in Christ, of how much you need Christ daily and how much other people need Christ daily. That you are made in the same image of God as them. They're made in the same image of God as you are. That at the cross, we're all in the same playing field. Because the thing, I know it's difficult. I know in today's society where we are so quick to judge with Twitter and social media and everything else, it just seems people are so wanting to sling mud and, and ruin people's names. But that's not how we as the body of Christ should be. And that's not how it should be here at LSM. That will be a family. Now people walk in, they will see something different. When they leave, they just say, there was something different about those students. They come from different backgrounds. Yes, they have different, they look different. They believe different things. But you know what? They truly love. So here's what I want us to do. At the bottom of your page, the bottom of your notes, there is a, a response. There could be something that has stuck out to you. Maybe there is a sin that God has revealed that you want to confess to God. Maybe there is a person you've been holding a grudge against or you've been judging. Maybe there's people at your school, at your work, on your teams, wherever, that you were like, I really need to reach out to them. Maybe there's someone even in this very room, in this student ministry, that you've realized that maybe you've hurt through that and you want to reconcile that. <clears throat> you can do that. And so what I want us to do over these next few minutes, um, I'm going to have Caleb and Nat come back up and they're just going to play the guitar for just a little bit while I give you a few minutes to focus on that, to write down your response. And then after, we are going to sing a song together in response to what we've heard, response to who Jesus is, in response to just how amazing he is. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give us that few minutes just for you. That's between you and God. If, you do that, if not, if you want to talk to me or an adult leader, you can. We can make this altar open to anyone that just wants to come down and pray and have that be something symbolic. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us a time to respond. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for you. We are so thankful that the gospel shatters favoritism. That the gospel breaks down barriers. That regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of politics, regardless of social stature, regardless of any of that, that Jesus, you came down and you gave your life for all. So we might be one in you, that at the cross we are all the same. We are all in need of you. 
So God, I pray that you will root out any favoritism that is in our hearts. That you will show us the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your son, Jesus. That he will heal us. He will forgive us. He will help us grow to become more like him. He will help us here at LSM to become even more like family. To become more like the people you have called us to be. That when we go out into a watching world, they will see something different about us. They will experience true love. So Holy Spirit, over these next few minutes, I pray you will work in our lives. I pray you will help us confess sins that we need to confess. I pray that we'll bring these things before you. I pray that we will help grow closer to you. And that in turn, we'll be able to worship just how amazing Jesus is. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.